to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today we're joined by Justin Patagis, who is a business systems architect. Welcome, Justin. Really glad to be on today with you, Meryl. It's great to have you here. And Justin, you're a business systems architect. Let's start by diving into that. What does that actually mean? Great question. Yeah. So to me, business systems architecting is really about building the internal infrastructure and systems that allow a business to operate successfully on a day-to-day basis. So this is everything from the technology, operations, standard operating procedures, team processes. These are like the nuts and bolts, the gears inside the business clock that keep it running on time. Wow. And if someone, say a service business owner or an agency owner was to come to you and say, Justine, I want to systemize my business, but where do I start? What's your approach? So my approach is high level and comprehensive in the sense that, you know, any system that we have is there's so many interrelated pieces that go into building it and we can leave no stone unturned in terms of assessing a system and figuring out what's working and not working. But always the place that I start with any of my clients that I work with is the delivery. And so this looks at, you know, if you have an agency, what is it that you're delivering? Maybe you have a Facebook ads agency and you're making sure that you're providing ads that are actually converting customers and people to your business. And you have all sorts of things that run for that. Like you have to optimize the ads, you have to get copy, you have to make sure the messages are in alignment with your clients. You have images, you have links that you're tracking. You're probably tracking all sorts of data throughout the funnel itself to see at what points people are converting or dropping off. So there's all sorts of nuance that needs to be tracked in terms of Facebook ads agency model. And we always start with delivery because if we were to optimize something like sales or marketing before the delivery is optimized, there's always the risk that there could be too many people coming into a broken system, which will exacerbate issues, exacerbate problems, and ultimately scale a service that maybe hasn't been quite dialed in yet to the level it needs to be to take on that increased level of clients or customers. That makes sense in terms of why you would start with focusing on delivery first before trying to provide something like sales. And so when you're looking at the delivery model and the processes around that, how do you decide what to focus on? I imagine, especially if a business owner hasn't spent a lot of time developing the systems for delivery, there might be potentially a lot of gaps there. Yeah, there definitely can be. Although I would say that most businesses that I work with, they've been in business for five to 10 years. Their delivery is usually pretty dialed in in terms of they have a consistent system that they use, even if there are a lot of areas where it can be improved or streamlined or automated. The reason that they're able to bring me on generally is because they have something that works and they have happy clients that are working with them. But in any case, where we always start is with a high level brain dump of everything that is existing in the delivery system. So that's everything from 
current systems in place, technology that's used, team members that help to run the delivery system where the business owner interfaces with the delivery. We look at you know, what existing processes are in place, what the offers are, how much they cost, how long it takes to deliver them. So it's really, you know, if we were, I mean, I'm essentially coming in, even if I've worked with similar businesses in the past, I like to pretend that I know nothing about the business. So I come in with a fresh set of eyes and I can ask all of the questions that help me build a picture of their business and how they like to operate in it. Because at the end of the day, business owner has to really enjoy, I would say 80% of what they're doing. At least that's my goal for any business that I work with, is that the business owner is really operating in their place of strength and doing the things they love doing in the business. And so that's always something I'm looking at as well. You know, if they want to be in the delivery, do they love it? If they don't want to be in the delivery, who needs to run it? But really, it just comes down to mapping everything so there's a really clear picture and pathway from when a customer first comes on, signs that contract, and begins working with the clients that I'm working with, and all the way to the end of their service. What are all of the components? What are those timelines? Where do they need support? What does the onboarding process look like? I mean, we really just get into all of the nuts and bolts of it. And to me, that's really fun. And so you map all of that out. And how do you actually do that? Is there a tool that you're using to document all of that? Do you have any insights or tips around how you, how you go about mapping a process? Yeah, there's a few. Funnily enough, I love whiteboards and huge blank pieces of paper. I mean, there's all sorts of great technology out there. But at the end of the day, I can grab a pen and I can draw a process. I use process mapping diagram, you know, arrows and square boxes and rhombuses and, you know, all of that to delineate different pieces if it's a decision or if it's a place where there's split processes that move. So for example, if somebody comes on and they're being onboarded and they've already had a previous engagement with a client, you know, their onboarding process might look a little bit different. So we're going to see it branch at that point. And they might get a different set of emails, for example. And so it's actually part of my process to kinesthetically go through that because it reinforces that client's business in my brain so that I can keep all of those nuances in mind when I'm assessing different parts of the system. I personally find that to be helpful. There are tons of great tools out there that are specifically process mapping oriented. But for me, I still like old-fashioned pen and paper or big whiteboard. And then I take pictures of that stuff and I send it to one of my team members who builds a process map using either InDesign or Photoshop, depending on what tool they want to use that day. It was interesting when you said that you go through that process yourself. That reminds me of very early on in my career when I was an auditor, I used to process map accounting systems. We used to call it walkthroughs. And so you actually had to walk through what the process was like if you were their customer and then seeing how the payment system would work or if you were a new employee and walk through what that process would look like for getting paid that first time. So it's actually really interesting, but it's brought back memories for me hearing you talk about actually going through that process. And I imagine that would really help to understand it and maybe pick up on things that they may just have forgotten to tell you about. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's why walkthroughs are so helpful because when you Literally say, okay, and what next? 
okay, and what next? Okay, we've done this, and what next? That can surface things that are either unclear in the process or, like you said, have missed a step or might be just a hole in general. And so I find it to be extremely useful. One other technique that I use is called swim lane diagramming. And I'll use that when I'm doing day-long intensives with clients in person. And we'll literally map these big lanes horizontally across a wall and use sticky notes to delineate steps in the process. And then we'll break them down by who owns it. So it can really help map, okay, what is the flow of a process from start to finish? Especially if you're doing something like a lot of content generation, you have a content site and you are publishing articles to you know, hundreds of thousands of people and they have to go through ideation, outlining, research, drafting, sign-offs, you know, pulling all sorts of images and links and making sure there's all those connections made through the site. Those processes touch multiple people and there's all sorts of timelines and sign-off processes that are involved in that. And so to actually see it visually where it's like, okay, here's where it starts. And then this is when the editor touches it. And this is when the content developer touches it. And this is, you know, management sign-off. And we can see how that piece flows, not only through the continuum of development, but also in and out of the team. That's a really helpful piece, not only for the management to know, but also all of the team members to know, because then they really get a clear picture of why they're so important in the process. And to them, it can really reinforce a sense of ownership. That's really helpful. And so what happens next? So say you've met with the business owner and their team, you've mapped out the process around delivery. What would be the next steps from there? Building anything that needs to be built. What I do is I go through all of the process maps and I essentially generate a work order. And that work order includes anything that needs to be built out to make the system operate more efficiently, operate in an automated fashion, or if there are pieces of the system that just haven't been built or have been done in an ad hoc kind of basis, then I literally have a spreadsheet that says, okay, here's all of the things that need to be built. Here's the technology they're going to be built in. These are the dependencies and this is the date it's due. And so that work order then gets generated and handed off to my team for the tech build side of things. And then after that, I generate a whole list of standard operating procedures that also need to be created to run all of those different pieces of that system. And so then that includes who's going to be the process owner, again, what tools are included or required to run the process, and then due dates for those processes to be created. So it's essentially generating that delivery user manual for the business. And do you have any tips around creating standard operating procedures? And then I've got some questions around maintaining them. This is actually from personal interest, as well as what I think our audience will be interested in. At Ninjas, we did a whole process mapping and then documentation of standard operating procedures about a year ago. And we got it done, but then we've been a bit lax in maintaining or keeping them all up to date. So I've got some questions for you around that, but I won't jump ahead. So first of all, best practice around actually creating these standard operating procedures first time around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that I like to do it that I found is kind of quickest and captures the process from soup to nuts is to have the process owner 
because a lot of times these processes actually already exist. And so it's getting the process owner to sit down and record themselves like screencast using Loom or a similar tool to walk through the process from start to finish and actually do it. Because then there's a video recording that can easily be dropped into that standard operating procedure documentation and watched. I mean, some people like the visual, some people like the audio, some people like to read. So whenever we're creating SOPs, we like to have it in all of those different formats so that it can appeal and be a good learning tool for any team member who's on board. And then what happens is those videos, those recorded videos get passed off to another team member of mine and they go through and actually do the write-up. So they'll take screenshots from the video. They'll write the steps out very clearly. I've got a template that I use for that. And so they just go through and then fill in everything. And then the final step is for actually to have somebody who's in the business, take that process and walk through it and make sure that nothing was missed. Often where things get overlooked in standard operating procedures are decision points. Like, I mean, some processes are really cut and dry. You know, if you're sending a contract, there's very little decision-making that has to be done. You just have to pull the information from the right places, put it in, test it, send it out. And that's really cut and dry. But if you're, for example, with a content mapping process, content generation process, like we were talking about earlier, there might be different reasons why you have different writers who are writing articles or when you're going to drop in different affiliate links or how many links to drop in that are either linked to affiliated products or services or other articles that are in the ecosystem of that business. And it's not always clear why somebody would do that. And so if you're a content manager and you're coming in to a business, you might say, okay, well, like all of this process to get the content created is good, but why were these decisions made? That's like something that's so helpful to get in there. So many people, you know, that's just that information lives in the people who work in the business and not necessarily in the standard operating procedures, but that is definitely a place of high leverage that a lot of folks overlook. Interesting. And so then when these procedures are documented, how would you recommend businesses maintain them? Because processes can kind of change over time or they can just evolve. And especially if they're small changes, it's easy not to take the time to update the procedure. And then all of a sudden someone new starts and they can't follow the procedure anymore because it's changed so much from what originally was documented. Yes, absolutely. That's definitely a risk, but a risk that can be mitigated pretty easily. What I recommend is that businesses update their core standard operating procedures quarterly. So this is delivery, any main marketing channels, any main sales processes, essentially core functioning to the business. The more that you do that, the quicker it is to actually update it. Because in three months, you might only have a couple small things changed across a few SOPs. But if you leave everything to twice a year, even once a year, then all of a sudden you've got a big project on your hands and that can be kind of unwieldy. That's my recommended way to actually update them. And I'm curious if you have any following questions because I've got another train of thought coming in, but I want to pause before I change topics slightly. No, I think that's great. I think having it scheduled and having clear accountability in terms of whose job it is to update the procedure, 
I think that is important as well. And I just had one question around where you track that, whether using something like a spreadsheet to track that or whether uh, there's a tool that you recommend, and then we'll move on to your next thought. Yeah, spreadsheet's a great place to track it. You might track it in your project management software and have SOPs on a like, hey, check this every three months recurring or six months recurring, depending on what the process is and how often it's changing. If you're in a place where you're doing a lot of sales system upgrades, you might want to have somebody in there weekly doing updates so that things don't get way off track and way outdated. So it really just depends on the rate of evolution of a process, as well as, yeah, just how much it's changing. So I highly recommend either a spreadsheet of links to the processes when they were last updated. And I think it's really important to have the process owner update them. Everybody on a team should be empowered to update their own processes. That also spreads the workload out a lot more. So it's not just on one person to go through a bunch of stuff that they probably don't even know or aren't even you know, in the day-to-day of. Much quicker if somebody who owns it just does it. And I mean, it really depends on how many standard operating procedures you have that need to be updated, but you can make significant updates in two to three hours at a time. You might only need six hours total to update SOPs, maybe three hours quarterly. As long as you're not letting it stack up and have a huge backlog, it shouldn't be a major time investment. And you mentioned you had another train of thought, so let's jump into that as well. Yeah. So my other train of thought, a question I get asked a lot is, you know, how often do people actually operate from the standard operating procedures? Like how often are people actually in that documentation? And I find that the SOPs themselves are really useful when training and getting somebody up to speed in a new role. But generally speaking, somebody, especially once they're up to speed, is not going to be in that SOP daily. What they really should be interfacing with is now a project management system or a task management system where they're going through and actually going through the steps, but confirming that they've done them. And so there's this final step of taking an SOP and translating it into your project management system. So for example, a podcast, you can have an SOP on you know how to book guests and what the topic of the conversation is going to be and the links that are going to be generated for sharing and you know how the audio file gets processed and potentially edited and then how the show notes are generated and then how that gets posted on your website and onto social media. So it can be really useful to have a template in a tool like Asana that says episode XX and then topic name as a template. And then it has all those steps. And then all of those steps can be assigned to each person who's responsible for it, whether they're checking in with the guest or they're you know, putting it up on WordPress, or they're making sure that the links are live in um, Libsyn and Apple iTunes. And so you can just go through and check, 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 check. And so at that point, somebody understands the process, but it's still being interfaced with through the project management system specifically. I love the way you describe the interface between the standard operating procedure itself and then the project management system and the checklists. I think that's made it really clear. And I know that sometimes there can be some confusion around the relationship between those two things. So if we jump back to the agency kind of case study we're talking through, we've worked on the delivery part of the business. You've mapped out the process. 
the standard operating procedures of Documentum and what happens next? What would you then work on? Yeah, so after the delivery system processes and procedures are updated, there's often a team training component to ensure that any delivery changes are made operational so that whoever's owning those different parts, they understand what their commitment is, understand when they need to be making good on that commitment, the frequency of it. And there's a system check to ensure that, okay, these are the changes, they're in place, everyone understands what they need to do, and the things are working. So that's really the final step of that implementation phase for the delivery. And then we move on and we do the same thing again for sales. So now that we've got the delivery system set, it's ready for more clients, you know, we understand the capacity, then we're moving on to, okay, now we can sell more and we can be confident that we're maintaining that high level of quality assurance and that the business is going to still be able to deliver that high level experience and outcome that they've done so far. Right. And so you use a similar process to optimize sales. And then is there another step after that? I think we talked about there being three components to the the three stages. Yep. So then after sales, we do the same thing for their marketing system. So it's the same process, but in three phases, the phase for delivery, the phase for sales, and then the phase for marketing. So we start at the end and we work backwards. And now that you've described that, I can understand why you focus on delivery first, then sales, and then marketing. So I wanted to turn the conversation now to personal systems. And we've been talking about business systems, but as a business owner, it's really important to have personal systems. And I wanted to get your insight on how you've described personal systems and how you could work on improving those. Yeah. So I call this the personal stack of effectiveness because there's a lot of different factors and some of them aren't even business related at all. Because you know, if you're not getting a good night's sleep, how dialed in are you going to be when you get behind your computer and set up to work? Probably not very effective. And so I really look at personal systems as something that's holistic. So I'm taking into account things like fitness and nutrition, how much you're sleeping, you know, to borrow from the way ultra working looks at things, you know, what is your most important work and how much of it are you doing? Are you doing your daily monthly planning? You know, how much of your time is uninterrupted where you can go in and get deep work done? There's just a lot of factors, but high level, I really believe that our energy and the consistency of our energy is one of the most important things that we can bring into our personal systems. Because if we're coming in and we're high energy and we're not having crashes and our brains aren't fogged up and we can come in and really be the most effective and best performing version of ourselves that we can be day in and day out, like we're going to be able to do a lot more in our business than if it was otherwise. Yeah. And before we started recording, we were talking about some of the things that we each try in our own personal productivity to really optimize our own performance. And something that you mentioned is that you've been getting up at 2 a.m. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit and hear about, first of all, what made you decide to try that and then how that's working for you. Yeah, so it's 
I'm laughing over here because it was really kind of an unexpected experiment. You know, sometimes I like to run a lot of experiments, but this one took me a little bit by surprise. I mean, I've been a morning person, but not necessarily like a gung-ho morning person. I've been a reluctant morning person. (laughs) But because I'm in Malaysia right now, for me to have overlap with Eastern time in the U.S. means I've got to be sitting at my computer at 3.30 or 4 p.m. And for me personally, I like to have slow mornings. And to me, that means, you know, I get either an hour and a half or two hours first thing in the morning where I'm not touching my phone. I'm meditating. I'm having a green smoothie. I have time to wake up and shower. You know, it's like, there's really nothing that I need to do that's being demanded of me in the first hour and a half or two. So I can really land in my body. I can get a handle on my day and get set up to be the most effective. You know, I'm journaling. I'm just taking time to really show up. And so I realized it's like, okay, if I want to have 3.30 a.m. start times for client calls and sales calls, then I need to be up at two. (laughs) And I just went, okay, I'm getting up at two. You know, it really wasn't, there wasn't a big brouhaha about it. It was just like, I know these are my requirements. And for me to meet my requirements, this is what I need to do that. And so I made the decision and it's been great. I love the way you work backwards from that. So there was a time that you needed to start and instead of compromising on your morning routine, you just got up earlier and it just happens to be quite early. (laughs) Yeah, you know, but it's really not a, for me, as long as I'm sleeping seven and a half, eight hours, like I'm really good and my energy is really good. So blackout curtains in bed at 6 p.m., earplugs, you know, I have a wind down time before bed where I'm off technology, usually for 30 to 60 minutes before I go down, you know, and so I'm just maintaining all my routines. It's just at different intervals, but I have to say it's been a revelation because in the past I've felt like I've had this belief, like I'm not good at night, you know, where it's like my energy drops and like, maybe I'm not as sharp or whatever, but now 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. is starting to get quote unquote late in the day in this experience. And I'm finding that my sharpness and my ability to maintain focus and energy is really not changing at all. And so it's really having me understand that my perception of these things is actually a big factor. And so if I can change my perception, I can actually change my experience. Yeah. And you've been doing a little bit of traveling recently. What time zone are you moving to next? I'm interested with your travels if you will end up back in the US time zone and then I suppose your routine may change again. Yeah, so I'm still not 100% sure where I'm heading next, although it looks like it may be Bali, South Korea, Japan, or it may just be Bali and then back to the US. It's totally up in the air. I have no flights booked. I'm, I'm still figuring things out, but at some point I will in the next two to three weeks end up back in the US and you know, I'll still maintain all the same routines that I always maintain, but I am definitely sticking with an earlier wake-up time. It's been such a revelation for me that that's, I think, it's going to be a mainstay. And are there any other things that you do? We've talked a little bit about personal systems. Is there anything else that you're doing to really help optimize your work performance? We touched a little bit on sleep and exercise, but if there was anything else that you thought would be useful for the audience that is working for you, then yeah, I'd love to share that too. Yeah. Two quick things. The first is I've really increased my 
water intake. And, you know, our brains are made of water. And so even with a small percentage of dehydration, our brains actually lose a lot of their core functioning. And most people aren't drinking enough water. I thought I was drinking enough water. I think I was drinking like 50 ounces a day, which is, I think, maybe about a liter and a bit. And when I spoke with my health coach, she said, this is not enough. This is not enough. And so I've gone from drinking 50 ounces to drinking 75. And now I'm drinking more like 100 because Malaysia is such a hot country. So I'm sweating a lot more. So I'm aware that I just need to up the water intake, but that's come really easily like that jump. It was weird at first to actually drink more water, but now that I'm in the habit of it, it's really easy and it's made a huge difference both for my workouts and for my energy. Dehydration has been found to slow down the metabolic rate by as much as 3%. And I have a link that I can share, but essentially keeping your brain hydrated because our brains are made up of so much water has a huge impact on our brain's functions. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is Ultra Working's work gym, where they do set hours of cycles multiple times a week. You can come in and do deep work for four hours at a time through a structured process that takes a lot of the best practices for getting work done efficiently and effectively. That makes such a huge difference. My level of efficiency is increased by about two times by committing to show up to those work cycles for at least eight hours a week. So that's been huge and big fan of what they're doing. And next, I wanted to ask about what's on for you for 2019 and for your business. We've talked about the process where you engage with clients and the way that you work and create results. But I was interested in what your business looks like at the moment and what you're working on for 2019. It could be personal as well. What's on for the year ahead? Yeah. So what's on for the year is literally using the same processes that I run for my clients and doing them all for myself and expanding the capacity of my team so that I can be out of the day-to-day more and more highly leveraged in, in my work and in my business. So to me, that's a big thing. And what's really fun is, you know, I know from doing this for clients, each system takes, you know, about four weeks, sometimes as much as six, if the business itself is really complex. Like I'm going to map all the same things for myself and take myself through the process. So that's the big thing, which is expanding capacity so that I can be confident that with an increase in client load, that they're going to maintain that same level of great service that all my clients currently get. Interesting. Well said. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoy talking processes and productivity as well. So it's been a really enjoyable interview. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is so fun. I can just jam on this all day. So really appreciate the opportunity to be here and share this with all of your awesome people. Something that I'm super passionate about is supporting women in business to develop their financial literacy skills. I'm excited to announce that we are now offering five scholarship positions for five lucky women to attend our six-week financial literacy for zero users online program which starts in August. So we'll cover the $999 program fee so that five amazing female entrepreneurs can improve their financial literacy skills. The course 
consists of videos, templates, and a workbook that you will work through each week. And we also have a weekly call with a small group where we discuss the topic for the week and you can ask questions around implementing these things in your business. If you or someone you know might want to apply, just head over to beanninjas.com forward slash scholarship.